between us in a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on.
socialism is a slightly different from the communist takeover. Communism does it in a hurry by revolution and bloody revolution. And socialism, as in the Fabian technique, uses gradualism and the taking over of governments from within across the world. But still having private, public enterprises, they bring them together. And and once you go back around that circle, you find, you call it fascism again. So it's one and the same thing. That's exactly what Mussolini did when he put laws over the restrictions of certain corporations, but they were on board public-private. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Talking about fascism and socialism, it's looking to the history of Mussolini Cooley was supposedly called the first fascist, and his society that he presided over was fascist, but in looking to his history, he was the editor, the chief editor for the Italian socialist newspaper for years before, before he became called, it was called the fascist. And it's one and the same thing, as I say, you ground in a loop of socialism, and you end up at the end with fascism. They love isms. Isms really means a doctrine of a doctrine. And the really authoritarian systems are all technically fascist in their approach to their main topic. The topic is, and their objective is control, complete control over the rest of the population. That societal control, uh, actually birth control, you might say, because they're all into depopulation down to a manageable level especially getting rid of the inferior types and bringing in the superior types and breeding them up. Now they've gone one step further, of course, by the use of science and genetics. That's why the big thrust was on for genetic research, not to cure anything. The the way to get rid of uh, bad genes is to let them die off. They don't want to cure you of diseases, if you inherit any. And therefore, it had the good stock left. That was put out plainly by Charles Galton Darwin, the physicist, the grandson of Charles Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years. And many others have reiterated on that topic from the top, because they all go along with it. We've had them talk about the need to use tranquilizers on the public. Sedatum Huxley, Aldo Huxley, author of Brave New World and Brave New World Revisited, He's up on YouTube on different, and different other sites as well with his old lectures, his old talks he gave at Berkeley and his television conversations that he had with some well-known people talking about this very topic. Overpopulation was one of his main concerns too. And then, of course, we know that Julian Huxley, uh, I read from Julian Huxley's books on air to show you that he was right along with this agenda. These guys were totalitarian, authoritarian, and basically fascist or socialist. You can take your pick. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. It's one and the same thing. And for many years now, we've watched, watched the blending of public-private partnerships. Years and years before 9-11 came along. And in Britain, they had Prince Charles come out and announce the, the, the need for more and more public-private partnerships. See, public and private 
private, what they're really saying is private corporations and your government. That's what they mean. Which is fascism. That's fascism. You tie that in with, with what they're doing to the public and where they want to take the public. And look at all the changes we've had, the massive changes we've had even prior to 9-11. They tried to bring in the ID cards before 9-11 in some European countries with the live active chip in it as well. They tried that in Britain, but people rejected it. There was demonstrations against it because nothing was happening. The Cold War, we were told, was all over and the capitalists had won. Everything was going to sail along. So they shelved that and they had to get something going because terrorism would be the answer. Government, remember, for centuries has validated its existence by telling the public that you need us to defend you. And for centuries, certain families at the top of the tree, royalties, would point the finger to their cousins across the water and get you off to go and fight for them. That was the old way of keeping you in line. It killed off the excess population, according to them, and they profited very well from it. They never lost because they never killed the kings and queens when they won. They made little agreements, shook their hands, had a party, and went home, and no doubt split their profits. But that's how it's always been. Today, the very, very rich use governments to collect money for them as a substitute for war. We do it through taxation and laws. And those at the top always ensure that, that the corporations, the big international corporations, go unscathed through thick and thin. We saw this with the banking bailouts, where the very rich were rewarded for raping and pillaging a planet, and the taxpayer has to pay for it all. They won't change the system technically. They'll do a few minor adjustments to keep us all happy, but the same old system will go on, and we have to foot the bill every time. But to keep government strong, they've got to have terrorism. In a world society, remember, you need an enemy. And the Club of Rome was given, the big think tank was given the, the challenge of finding an enemy to unite the world. They came up with the idea of saying that mankind itself was the enemy of the planet. And came up with global warming. Then they call it climate change because of the warming theories could have fallen flat. But they changed the climate change. And repetition works. Everybody's prattling on about climate change. So therefore, that's how they validated it. Plus, there's terrorism everywhere. We saw this in George Orwell's 1984 in the novel. But you can also get the black and white television version or movie version with Richard Burton and John Hurt in it. It's done very well. Perpetual war. And a few people, a few of us knew at the very beginning that under terrorism, uh, the guise of information and data collection would expand. That was the intention of it in the first place, until everything becomes terrorism. And anyone can be checked out by any authority, and there's more and more expanding and multiplicity of authorities now than you can even count. You can't count so many, so many departments, all given access to your personal data. Just like the Soviet Union, because after all, the Soviet Union and China they're still called Red China, by the way. There are authoritarian governments that use these techniques. And any time they want someone, they can simply punch up your number and 
find something that you've done wrong. You can't help but do something wrong today or illegal because there are so many laws on the books. Recently, in fact, I watched the British version of COPS, the propaganda, hurrah, hurrah, for the police, propaganda series they have in Britain, where they lock down cities with their interceptor cars, use all this military terminology amongst each other on the radio. They have supercomputers in all cars. They don't even have to read the number plates because the computers on the highways, they do it all for them automatically. And and three teams are policed from different areas working on the same city. We're having a competition to see who could get the most tickets out, the most charges laid. And the one that was laying behind, it was running behind without charges, the, the guy was asked, what will you do? He said, I'll use my policeman's nose. And you watched how they managed to get charges laid for irrelevant things. Even antagonizing the people to say something so they could arrest them. That's a modern society. That's a police state. When they compete, and police departments compete, they hand out tickets. You know, the KGB and the Soviet Union, once they started using computers, simply had issuances every month for statistics and quotas, and they had to go and fill those quotas, torture people, and kill them, because they had to have so many that month. That's where it's all heading. I kid you not. I kid you not. You have to go in to the understanding of game theory, and I've talked about this before. I've given links to very good documentaries on the game theory, this RAND corporation idea that really is worldwide within, with every government using it. But if everyone numbered, they have your routines and your patterns of your behavior figured out, and they're watching you daily now with the Internet and your email and your phone conversations to make sure you're following your pattern, your predicted pattern. Anything that's non-predictable and anybody who's non-predictable is a threat to this system. And control freaks must make sure that you are perfectly predictable. And it goes much, much further than that because they use economists and crazy people, in fact. You ever wondered about schizophrenia? How people who are more emotionally based, maybe right-brain-based, or have emotional topics as they, in, in their particular delusions and so on. When you go in to the top scientists, even the guy who came up with the idea of game theory, Mr. Nash, who, who truly was a paranoid schizophrenic, but he was also into mathematics and economics, and all the top governments use economists to do with their data collection because they use mathematics to predict how societies will go, including every one of you, according to the group and subgroups that you belong to and associate with. Therefore, when they go off the deep end, you can see some of their books. In fact, I have some of them here by the top ones. And there's nothing human in it. It's all statistics and graphs and numbers and quotas, again, and quotients as well. They try to rationalize and figure out the future with mathematics, the same thing that Bertrand Russell was hyped on about. He said the perfect language that he understood was mathematics. What he was referring to 
was the fact that he was doing the stuff that Rand is now doing before Rand was doing it. Incredible. And people are looked upon, the general public are looked upon, not as people, but as objects. Objects. When you're given a number instead of a name, you're an object. As part of the depersonalization process for those who will handle you, especially the bureaucrats. It's well understood by historians that the bureaucracies that ran the camps in World War II for Germany, like IBM that was involved and brought the cardiac system out, used the numbers for this very reason. The bureaucrats found it easy to control and do things with people because they were not people anymore. Back with more after this break. I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, talking about those who are used by the ones at the top to bring in a more assured system of control. And they use people who technically are more left-brained in their makeup than right-brained, mathematicians, guys who love statistics, people who, if they become psychotic and sound, to someone who's not informed, maybe even logical, the way they try and spin things together because they don't go off into such emotional tangents. But they're used. In, in ancient times, they used to get wise men or seers or witches, like the witch of Endor, who were often classified as mad. They used to say that the demon that possessed them made them mad, regardless they're all classified basically as mad, not just eccentric. Today it's no different. It's no different whatsoever. Because they pay people very, very well, like Mr. Nash. They come up with these amazing programs to predict society and predict. It's all to do with predictions, you see. Control freaks are terrified of something outside of their control. So the predictions that come in from these guys at the top that they can utilize and use to maintain control, are very, very important. And you go into these particular mathematicians and economists' books and the ones who are into the game theory idea, which is still ongoing, by the way. They've upgraded it. Before, they were using Kant and different people, and they'll tell you that. They reel off one philosopher after another, and what you find is they have no minds of their own. They can't think of anything original. They have to take previous philosophers and, and uh, use their theories for maybe a generation or two and add it to someone else's theories. It's always attaching theory to theory to theory. That is left-brained again because it, they have no imagination. They can't think for themselves. Therefore, they can only regurgitate what's been said in the past. Even if it's craziness that's been said in the past, they regurgitate it and try to make it work in the present and in the future. It's astonishing. And they feed all this data and all our data into their massive computers. And now they're all labeling everyone in different categories. So you're not a person, as I say. You're, you're depersonalized when you become a number. IBM used this in World War II. That's why the Nazi regime could have bureaucrats making decisions 
The bureaucrats never went to the camps. They just dealt with numbers. These were people, but they were numbers. You depersonalize them by using numbers. Therefore, they're not really uh, saying uh, to eliminate so many number, uh, people. They're saying eliminate these numbers. Makes it more palatable to them. It's the same thing with us. We've had social insurance numbers, sin numbers. They're called sin for a good reason. And they call them social insurance programs, not, not services, programs. What do you think a program is? You're in a social program. Whose social program? We never question. But as I say, you should go into the books by some of these present-day London School of Economics and others books to do with game theory and the updated version they're now running everything on today. It's fascinating. Run by psychopaths and basically left-brain schizophrenics. Nothing changes. But here's an article here. And before I go into this article on ID cards, which is astonishing again because it breaks out in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere at the same time. Everything's in unison now. We're all global, as you say. But you'll notice during hostage-taking, the negotiator that tries to negotiate with the, the hostage-takers tries to personalize the victims, the hostages, by saying is, and they'll use their names. That's how you help to personalize. You put a name to the face that's under the gun hoping that the, the taker, the hostage taker, will see them as a person now, not as a target or an implement to be used in bargaining. To reverse that decision, you simply use a number and take away the name. It's the same thing. Think about it. We're being run. We're being run by scientists and supposed experts. You know, a totalitarian regime that has told us that this is just the beginning, if you think it's bad now. As we go into this wonderful world of equality and happiness and drastically reduce our population and our consumption and all the rest of it until we're happy to get a drink of water that we'll pay dearly for because it'll be owned by a global corporation. From the BBC, it says ID cards could use chip and pin. Tuesday the 7th of April, the UK's ID cards, I'm reading this because... I've got another article in the U.S. on the same thing at the same time. This could be fitted with chip and pin technology to tackle identity fraud. The head of the agency responsible for them has said, I can remember watching an article, uh, a, a documentary in Canada, CBC 1998 by Wendy Mesler. And she went through this whole ID card with the active chip in it at the time. It was already done then. It was a voluntary basis, mm-hmm. 1998. These ID cards are just a rehash that given out now of the ones they tried to bring in in Britain in 1998. It's the same ones. They're already fitted with the chip. See, you know, with a totalitarian regime, you cannot negotiate. Neither can you ever say you've won any battle because they'll always come back again. These boys at the top have an agenda and nothing is going to put them off. Asking them nicely is not going to do You're it. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
John Watt were cutting through the matrix. Talking about the ID cards and how they never give up. Because I, years ago I mentioned the fact that the ID card was to eventually also be used as a bank card and for everything else mm-hmm. that you do with an active chip. They never change their plans, these guys at the top. Why should they? Because it uh, must be. It's a religion with them. It must be. And here they are reintroducing the idea. You see, now that they've got the card out, step by step, you accept one card, you accept the next one. And in 98, as I say, they already had discussed on Canadian television the whole card with the chip and using for your bank machine as well. There's nothing new under the sun here. Now, here's how they're going to sell it to the public, which they say there's technical obstacles. There's no technical obstacles to the idea. In other words, it's a done deal. This is the head of the guy that makes them. He said this could allow ID cards to be used in cash machines and help. It's going to help online consumers assert their identities. There you go. To help you assert your identity, not for them to control you. Now, what Russell said, eventually you'll all be given a sort of ration card and the government will dish out credits per month. And, you, and every month they'll start off at the same level. You can't save it up. And if you're a bad boy, you simply say no. You can, and you try and pull some money up, nothing comes out. So you go back to being a good citizen under their authorization of citizenship. So here's the BBC rehashing the same thing, talking about the fact they're putting these things out, etc., just half of the cards meant for non-EU nationals were issued in the scheme's initial months. It has also emerged. Then they got on, on about the fact they started off with foreign nationals. They probably started with welfare folk as well, because they always do that. People who can't speak up for themselves, who cares? That's, that's the attitude that people have. And then they, they go up into the general population once we're used to the idea. These ideas that the public must be trained to get used to. That's all it is, mm. just ideas. And when I put a list of sites up, there was the links for them tonight to do with the PIN ID cards. And you can look them up for yourself, for the ones for the UK and the US especially, because there's a stack of them going on. In fact, there's a, a group that says a group observes 30-day Virgil over Fusion, Fusion Center Identity. A campaign 511, it's called the Grassroots Privacy Organization, opposed to the federal ID, declared 30 days of vigilance over identity legislation with connections to information analysis centers, that's the IAC, or what is now commonly known as fusion centers. Fusion centers, you see, this is in the U.S., based on reports that fusion centers are targeting third-party voters and those who pose constitutional challenges to the Department of Homeland Security, Intelligence gathering efforts were aggressively opposing any legislation that would secure or private information for national to international data aggregation. This may include voter ID, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole bunch of links at the end of this article, which I'll also give you a link to. And uh, you can look them over for yourself as some organizations trying to fight it in the U.S. And you can maybe get in touch with them and get your voice out there, because it's coming. It's coming. This is a worldwide campaign to get us all into the global grid. We were just numbers. And under the world global authority or government, mm-hmm. or governance as they may call it, we'll all be called to answer for her or 
petty crimes one day will all get a turn for being rehabilitated in the system. And getting back again to the use of drugs, drugging the population. I've always said, you know, the big pharma companies are part, really, of the military-industrial complex, the same as all the big high-tech industries are part of the military-industrial complex. People don't realize that warfare takes many forms, and there's nothing new whatsoever in using chemicals on populations during warfare. When you realize the whole world, the populations of the world are the problem, according to those who know better, you know, the elites, those intelligent ones, we're the problem, then, of course, they would use drugs on the population, and that's why Huxley and others advocated drugging everybody. Huxley said, well, most people are unhappy anyway. What's wrong with making them happy with drugs? But, of course, they mean the authorized ones, and these drugs, these drugs, are specifically meant to target specific areas of the brain. Also remember, with the eugenics programs, and it was written a lot about by Margaret Sanger and others who are hailed today as heroes, that they had to get rid of those with bad genes, and those with emotional disturbances were classified as having bad genes. Here's an article, like another one from the BBC that ties right in with this. It's all a big accident, of course, but it says... This is from 7th of April 2009. Sedation link to birth defects. Hundreds of girls heavily sedated in UK care homes during the 70s and 80s may be at risk of having children with birth defects, the BBC has found. The BBC has found it, really. Is that what the BBC is supposed to do? They're supposed to find The governments know this stuff. They have all the data on it. So do the scientists that authorized all this. So did the pharma companies before they issued the drugs. Radio Forest today found 10 ex-residents of a children's home run by the Church of England in Gravesend, Kent, have had children with a birth defect. This is only one of them. This is only one place. There's stacks of these places all over the UK and the world. Britain is exactly the same. It says they were given massive doses of tranquilizers and other drugs while being restrained as teenagers. The Diocese of Rochester says, or cooperate, etc. One child care expert says hundreds of children may have been drugged in the care system across the UK throughout the 70s and 80s. Well, they did. Did across Canada too. Across Europe and across the US. They're still doing it. Potentially subjecting them to the same health risks as those learnt about by the BBC. So using drugs to control behaviour of children was perfectly acceptable as far as their own professional understanding at that time went. Hasn't changed. What they found out here, it says, that many of the children that these, these young women eventually had have massive, massive birth defects and had, they all had respiratory problems, that's common. Uh, they have learning difficulties, some of them are born blind and many of them were cleft palates and micrognathia, which is a receding lower jaw. And these drugs, by the way, are still being used commonly today, not just in homes, but across general society. So I'll put that link up as well, and you can read up for it for yourself. Another interesting thing, too, is that we amalgamate the planet. And we've all seen articles, most articles, even this one here, 
is a, a form of predictive programming. We, we get taught, you train animals step by step to your intended target. If a dog is scared to go a certain place or up a ladder, you train them by putting the ladder near them, first of all, don't make them walk on it, put it on the ground, and so on and so on, and then gradually put it up to a little slope, not up, up. They train us the same way. So these articles are meant to get us to accept the first step, then they give us the second step, the third, the fourth, and the fifth, and suddenly we're in the cage. The U.S., we know, and Canada and Mexico have already made overtures to amalgamate parts of their army. In fact, it's really kind of done. Special units have already been formed and they're working together, have been for years, in fact. But here's Britain, basically the head of Britain for their forces, saying they're amalgamating with Europe. They're all at their disposal for the European army. That's from the Mail Online, April the 7th. And it says here, Britain is willing to provide all our armed forces to fight under the EU flag in future wars, a minister has revealed. European Minister Caroline Flint, this is the, the woman who helped ram through the EU constitution and hadn't read it, said that every operational unit of the British Army, Royal Navy and Royal Air Force will be on offer as part of an EU force catalogue. It's called an EU force catalogue. So everything's amalgamating across the world. This is incredible coordination. We've got to understand these guys who meet at the G20 don't plan anything. The bureaucrats do it all in advance for them. They just go there and sign and have great big meals. It takes years to, to get all this kind of thing in play. The groundwork set up, negotiations, and then agreement after agreement signed, sealed, and delivered. Then the infrastructure set up for it to work. This is only one part of it, of, of the whole of the globalization agenda. Every country is like a mirror image of the other countries with their anti-terrorism, their amalgamations, public-private partnerships, data collection banks, and sharing them. See, we are already global. And the fact is, you see, it's been, this war has been on the public for hundreds of years, and they didn't know. Gradualism. Gradualism. And one agenda only, an agenda that knocks out all competition. All competition. An agenda that pretends it's so liberal it will stand up for every group until its usefulness is over. And it goes on to the next target, the next target, the next target. Now you're all under authoritarian governments. Very, very simple. Fabian. Very Fabian. Now I'll go to the callers because there's some callers on the, the line here. And we'll see what they've got to say. There's Aaron from Pennsylvania. Is there Aaron? Yes, hi, Alan. How are you doing tonight? I'm hanging in here as usual. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. It's funny, you know, it's Gordon Brown's calling for a new world order last weekend, and you know, I go to work, and you know, I hear people's conversations, and, and nobody talks about it. No. You know, you, you, I was at work the other day, and I was listening to the, you know, Alex Jones show, and they were talking about that, and I turn off my my player, and I hear guys over in the corners talking about. You know, movies they just watched, yeah, <laughs> and over there just laughing, having a good time, not even really being concerned with any of this. And mm -hmm. it's, I, I find it difficult to have conversations with these people as you know you start to wake up. Yes, well, that that's the difference. You see, when you when you're awake, um, it can be terrifying for some people. I know that they tell me, uh, to live amongst people who obviously have something wrong with them, 
And but what you're seeing are the casualties of incredible warfare. Uh, any creature that is not cognizant of its environment and changes within its environment that will affect it is technically doomed. And what you're seeing uh, are is the, the, the fallout of intense indoctrination and psychology and um, the use of incredible media and, and entertainment on their minds to, to reduce them to the state they're in. They have no idea and they have no care. They truly are domesticated to, to the extent that they can't recognize danger when it's around them. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I try to tell them about it, and they just don't want to listen, or they, you know, they laugh at you. Yeah. You know. That's right. So, and another but, thing, you, you know, even cattle. I mean, I, I, I lived next to a farm uh, one time, and the cattle that are called domesticated animals, but they've been so inbred to create a specific domestic domesticity in them. Even the night before they were carted off to the slaughterhouse, and there was no signs of it happening, the trucks hadn't arrived, they'd be, they'd be making one heck of a noise all night long. They sense something. But humans don't, most humans don't even have that left in them anymore. It's yeah. gone. Yeah. And another thing is with these uh, kids, I was, uh, my niece just got the, I just found out she got the HPV mm-hmm. shot. You know, and she's only 11 years old. Yeah. 11 years old, and they're getting these shots already. That's right. That's, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And eventually, once it becomes commonplace, they'll get it much, much, much younger. This is just to introduce the idea. And again, it's and we get, we're trained step by step, and once we've done it long enough, it's no big deal to have them get the shot when they're two or something. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say uh, I really enjoy your your show, and I, I really like hearing your blurbs. Um, do you do those anymore? Uh, once in a blue moon, when I get time, I can I can do that. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, most people think I just come on the air and, and do an hour here, but really my whole day is tied up with other things, too, even yeah. to do with this and answering emails and running off to the store or whatever. Uh, there's things you've got to do. So this just this alone takes so much of uh, my time up. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm sure. And then you're uploading till maybe one in the morning, two in the morning, to the yeah. sites. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you one more question? Yeah. Um, I was reading on your website the question and answer thing, and one question talks about the, the three monks that set themselves on fire in the Vietnam era. And your answer, the last sentence says, um, only those who know as opposed to believe have no fear of casting off the physical body. Do these monks... Were they able to project their consciousness outside of their body while they were still alive through meditating? There are techniques. There's no doubt. We know about them. They've been demonstrated many times. Uh, there's techniques to, to literally avoid all pain whatsoever. And um, there was one guy, one, one guy from India that was a, a leader of the Hindu community uh, politically, in fact, and he had cancer of the throat. And he could actually put himself in a state where um, he, the, the pain would literally leave him uh, altogether uh, for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So it's possible for them to do that. It's, it's really a mind over matter thing. But again, too, um, there are also people who come to the stage of realizing uh, that life itself, what is life? Is life slavery? Are there really happy slaves? If you're not a happy slave, um, what do you have to lose? And of course, that's what governments are terrified of now. When they talk about suicide bombers, suicide bombers generally 
are people who have been throwing stones for years against tanks and who have nothing to lose, you know. In other words, what's your, what's your value of life to yourself is, is the big question that each one of these people will come to, right. including the monks that set fire to themselves. Well, thanks a lot, Alan, for taking my call. I appreciate it. And thanks for calling. I have a good night. Uh, and there's Tim from Indiana. Are you there, Tim? Here, man. Hello? Hey, hey hello? Yes. Hey, uh, how you doing, man? Not bad. Yeah. All right. Hey, I was just uh, going to comment on almost what you were talking about with uh, changes in your environment. Um, me and my buddy at work, we actually talk a lot about, uh, like, real things, so it's kind of nice to have somebody to really talk to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, about, like, five years ago, where I live at, um, I live, like, real close, where I actually work in uh, Kentucky, and in, in one of the biggest cities in Kentucky. And about five years ago, the city had put these, like, uh, steel barriers up, like, and they said that they put them all throughout the city, but they said they were, like, used it to, to protect people from crossing over, you know, the median, you know, yeah. if there was an accident. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, um, where I work at is in the outskirts of town, and I noticed that all over the city, supposedly where they're supposed to put these things, they only put them on the outskirts of the city. Yes. So about two months ago, there was, like, uh, two big barriers mm-hmm. on the outskirts, and I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, what, what's this about? So then... I had a eureka moment, like, wait a minute, they're, they're actually building barriers, I think, to, to set up, you know, in case they shut the city down. I'll tell you, hold on, and we'll come back on this, because I know quite a bit about this. <laughs> okay. I'll get you after these break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, and we're talking to Tim from Indiana about the big barriers that are going across um, alongside highways and roads uh, in the U.S. and Canada, in fact. And they have been doing this since around uh, 2000, 2001. They sped it up, even in rural routes. And, of course, the idea is eventually when any catastrophe or any crisis or even if a whole area is ordered to move or evacuate, They'll have you going one way only, and you can't get off the road. And part of that was was discussed back in the 70s and 80s when they said that uh, that people with SUVs would be a problem because they might try and get off the roads and go cross-country when they saw there was danger on the road that they were taking, being forced to take. So that was part of the push of getting SUVs off the road, believe it or not. That's what was really behind that. Hello, Tim. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yes, it's, go ahead. It's, fun, it's funny you said that because we were talking about that movie, I Am Legend, where they kind of like block off the city. Yeah. So so during this eureka moment I had, I was like, you know what, if that happened, like say to me or whatever, but you know, maybe I can get people together like, hey, let's let's all get our cars together and like push these things down and then go. Mm-hmm. And then and then my buddy's like, well, wait a minute. Well, if they do that, like they said that they would shoot people if you try to do it. And then if, they, yeah. if, if there's too many people doing it, then they would probably bomb them. Mm-hmm. I was like, dang, I guess, I guess you got a point, so. Yeah, it, we 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 had a good conversation about that, but it, it's kind of messed up though, because like looking at it, you're like, if they really did this, I mean, you you really are trapped, and it sucks because it's like, you know, what do you do, you know? Yes, and and I'll have armed helicopters overhead and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, well, that's all I'll have, man. So, yeah, uh, I'll let you. ask in there. Thanks for calling. All right. Yeah, they've thought they've thought of everything. You see, they've been they've been uh, making their plans and their war games for many many years, and. And now we're seeing the, the stuff implemented. Before 2001 happened, in fact, if you go along the major highways, you'll find 
and Canada and the States, uh, we have intersections. There's often holes at this very, very site near the barriers. That's where the big gate posts that they're going to put in. They're collapsible gates that they can just stick in that, those pre-existing sockets and unfurl it across the road. This was planned years before 9-11. And there's Sheldon from Arizona. Are you there, Sheldon? Hello? Howard? Yes. Yeah, hi, Alan. First time caller. Um, I think you're a very, very sharp researcher and a very polite individual. And I just heard you talking about 9-11, which was exactly what I wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, have you got the chance to check out the research Dr. Judy Wood has done in the 9-11? No. Well, she says that there is this her. She's a highly credentialed scientist out of South Carolina. She, um, her information is that a hurricane was headed towards New York City on the morning of 9-11, and that directed energy weapons brought the towers down and... She's got all these photos of these cars that instantly turned to rust after the towers uh, disappeared. Um, well, what are your thoughts on that? No, I don't believe it at all. I think there were so many, again, uh, PSYOPs programs went into effect after that to discredit the original exposés of 9-11. The BBC had um, the head of MI6 on right after, in fact, the day of 9-11. Uh, the Mossad had a spokesman on the day saying that they'd warned weeks before uh, the U.S. government what was going to happen on that particular date. And uh, it did happen uh, pretty well. Planes definitely uh, went into those buildings. At the top, anyway, the Pentagon is a different matter. Um, but definitely the, the, the towers, it was planes that hit those two towers. And um, now whether the guys were actually on it, they said is a big, it's up in the air because even the CBC documentaries in Canada uh, talked to different people who were supposedly on the planes that day who were still in their original countries and one of them was a taxi driver so I don't know where the CIA got their, their, their faces from but uh, planes certainly went into the tower to start off this is a must-be operation and a lot of fantastic stuff came out afterwards trying to discredit or, or create what they called conspiracy theorists so, so anyone talking about the agenda is lumped in as a conspiracy theorist. So the more bizarre and fantastic they can make it, the better. There's no doubt to me, and to pretty well everybody who's watched that and grown up watching demolitions occasionally on television, that a demolition job was done as they came down like decks With or cars. That was obvious. Well, here the music coming in, and from Hamish myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.